Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Director of IBM Digital Assets and CTO of Portal. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome along to Beyond Bitcoin. As normal, my colleague and friend, Nitin Gower, is here with us today to guide us through a, a list of questions with our special guest. Hello, Nitin. Hey, Derek. Glad to be back. I just returned back to the United States with an amazing week and a half in India, and I'd love to share some of that perspective. But again, glad, really glad to have Mark here and looking forward to this conversation. Terrific. And of course, Mark Witten, who is the CIO of Portal Asset Management, is with us today. And the topic today is a topic very close to the heart of most investors in this space. And really, investors in all equities would look at this, because we're going to talk today about volatility and correlation. And they're both important topics, because we exist in a space which is extraordinarily volatile. If you look at what the CCI 30 has done in the last 12 months, it's gone from a low of about 12,500 to a high of about 33,500. That's a 300% variation in 12 months. And where it sits now, if you look at 52 52 weeks or year to date, it's sitting at 2% gain in a year. And at one stage, it was ahead an extraordinary amount. This This is volatility. So how does one benefit from volatility? How does one how does one determine how to navigate volatility? And right now in these times of, of great turmoil with Ukraine, et cetera, what correlation are we seeing to the equity markets? Over to you, Mark. Give us some insight on how you see things happening at the moment. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, thank, thanks for having me. Um, long time no speak. <laughs> so I think, first of all, in my experience, um, volatility is generally misunderstood. It's generally very well understood by people who have traded or priced derivatives and options because optionality or, or the what they call vague or volatility is a big part of option pricing. And if you get that wrong, it can cost you a lot of money. The, the, you know, there's a couple of components. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but there's known components of an option pricing like theta, which is time, and delta, which is the price. But then the vega or, or the vol is generally what changes and they price them on the smile. So, you know, first of all, it's, it's, it goes out saying volatility is just a statistical measure of what they call the dispersion of returns for, a, for either a security or an index or a currency. And most people perceive that the higher the volatility in general, therefore, the, the riskier that, you know, the riskier that security or index or market is. What for practical purposes for, for layman, you know, volatility is essentially big swings in either direction. It's a backward looking measure, but it's big swings in, in, in either direction. So if you can think of an asset's price generally represents the, the valuation of that asset. So in other words, the share price of Coca-Cola times the number of shares gives you the market cap of Coca-Cola. And that represents the brands, the factories, all the Coca-Cola stock, the amount of cash flow, whichever valuation you look at. So theoretically, that price shouldn't go up or down 50% in a year. The value of Coca-Cola shouldn't change that much. It's very much a stable product. You know, it's, got, it's got brand recognition, et cetera. 
So when we see these massive dispersions of returns, particularly in the crypto space, people then consider that very risky because no one seems to have a very firm grip as to what determines the valuation of cryptocurrencies, which is you know, the layer ones, the Bitcoins, the Ethereums, and then obviously the, what would we deem the smart contracts in DeFi, more the securities, the digital assets. Um, we can get into that a bit, a bit later. I think for our purposes, volatility, especially if you're managing money in the digital asset space, volatility and correlation actually need to become the kind of almost the cornerstone or the bedrock of your investment thesis because the valuation and the portfolio construction will very much be determined by how the, the assets kind of play together. So how some of them zig while others zag, that's the whole purpose of correlation is to find assets that do different things in different markets and that smooths out the volatility. I think the way that I generally measure volatility is the standard deviation away from the mean. So how far is it? The mean is just the mean. Um, that's the average price or the average movement over a certain period of time. And you can look at a 50, 200, 180 day mean. It doesn't, it's kind of whatever moving average you, you prefer. But then you look at, well, what is the, the movement away from that mean? And generally in the equity space and very much in the fixed income space, like two standard deviations away from the mean is, is a big move. Whereas in the crypto space, like three or four standard deviations away from the mean is, is commonplace. So the, the final thing I'd say on volatility is that people perceive volatility as risk. And I, I think that, yes, there is a component of risk in an asset that's very much volatile, especially if you're doing things like running leverage, playing on margin, which you do not need to do ever in the crypto space. It's enough volatility to give you, you know, massive returns. Um, as we saw on the last day of February, the market was up 15%, uh, which is kind of unheard of in the equity space. You never see a market bounce in 24 hours, 15%. Um, but volatility is not risk. Risk is getting it wrong. So risk is, is backing the assets that you know, are going to underperform massively. That to me is risk. So being stuck particularly in illiquid assets, whether it's real estate or fixed income, or in this case, let's say you'd bought... And it's a practical example. If you had bought Russian high yield paper, if you bought Russian high yield paper a month ago, your valuation is now probably 50 to 60% down and you cannot sell them and you cannot get the money out. That's risk. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're in the crypto space and you bought Bitcoin and it's rallied 15% or it's dropped 20% and you decide you want to sell, it's a matter of minutes and you're done. And you back into stablecoin, or you can you can take it out eventually as fiat. So there's no the, the, the risk. I think in, in in the crypto space is very much overestimated. Um, I think if that's if, if if you're happy with that sort of definition of volatility, just that essentially it's the uncertainty or the risk related to the size of the change in the values. And because crypto tends to you know move up and down as much as fifty percent in in any two to I mean you saw a drop. 50% from May to middle of July, and then it rallied 100% from there back to, you know, back to its highs in, in October. And that mm. for most people, they can't really stomach that volatility, but it also brings opportunity. And I think that's kind of the, 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 the foundation of what we've been building here at Portal is that we look for people that understand that volatility and can profit from that volatility, um, that they understand how to manage their risk and they're not doing you know, silly things and, and just taking on beta when it looks like you know, the markets look sanguine. They're actually understanding how to profit from that volatility and how to trade with its spreads, 
whether it's the new thematics that are evolving and, and they're generating super normal returns. We, we generally have funds on the, on the far end of the volatility spectrum that do north of 300% in the year, which is unheard of in the equity space, unless you're running like, you know, 100 times gearing. So I'll stop and pause there just so that we, we can agree if, if everyone understands volatility. And then I think we can start talking about, you know, how do we manage it and how do we apply it into the space? Yeah, so, so I think, you know, Mark, that's fantastic explanation. Do want to sort of tease a little bit uh, in terms of the relationship between volatility and you know, volatility and risk as you as you described. So if you, if we were to look into the traditional way of asset pricing, right, the capital asset pricing model, as you know, which factors in the expected returns, the risk-free return, the market risk, and there's a, there's an entire calculus that goes into pricing an asset, and then goes in terms of what the market is willing to pay, and then we begin to look into what information we're absorbing in pricing that asset and, 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 and risk becomes a byproduct of the, the, the entire fluctuation of the price. Hmm. If we were to look into crypto, we look into various elements of price stability. And I think we had this conversation last week in terms of stablecoin. We'll get to that in a minute. But also newer models like stock to flow, utility, uh, and there's other elements which are not as standardized as traditional asset pricing models is meme. Uh, and we have begun to factor that in, in our research, as you know, with portal asset management, begin to factor in the sentiment intelligence, right? Which is basically social intelligence in terms of what's happening, who's talking about it. A tweet from one of the uh, CEOs could change the direction, uh, you know, of, of, you know, off the price of that, of that particular token. I'd love to understand your perspective. How is, how are these newer factors of, you know, applying to the volatility of, of the asset, which is not the traditional equity space, mm-hmm. if you were to apply the same metrics. And that is changing the dynamics a little bit as, which I think many of the actuarists and people who are into reading markets can read the markets really well, but I'm not sure if they're factoring in this newer sort of challenges or newer uh, you know, information that's coming into it, which also impacts crypto more than it does uh, with traditional equity. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah it does, and that's a good point. Um, okay, so first of all, I think no, no assets, regardless of what it is, whether you're sitting right at the low end of volatility, which would be you know, cash at almost zero evolved, unless, unless you're in Russian rubles, but generally the US dollar's got very low vol, <laughs> um, you know, the Japanese yen, et cetera. And then you move up through like, you know, fixed income, government securities into like some real estates. And then right at the top end, you'd have emerging market equities. And then after that, quite further out from there, you have the likes of, of crypto. But regardless of where you sit on that risk, continu- you know, that continuum, no asset price is, is created in a vacuum. So you have to consider, you know, first of all, you have to consider all the things that are, all the factors that are exogenous to that. So you got to look at all the factors that are playing out at the moment. Like I, I've spoken about this recently with some of our investors. What happened in, in May last year when, when the markets tanked 50% was very crypto specific. There was number one, you know, China banning the Bitcoin miners. There was number two, big concern around the infrastructure bill and regulation. Um, then there was, you know, some of the other factors came in in terms of people now generally after the fact talking about this crypto winter and blah, blah. But it was crypto specific, whereas what's been happening since, let's say, November, when the market started turning, has become more macro driven. So, you know, it's more about the fact that 
Um, inflation was underestimated. We were talking about, you know, inflation is sticky and it's coming and, and, and the market's underestimating it. That was exacerbated by supply chain concerns. Um, then you had the Fed, you know, having a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. And, and, and this, this is, these were real numbers. You saw German PPI up the highest it's, I think, been since it's been recorded, like 20% at the factory gate. And that was driven a lot, a lot by fuel, but also supply chain disruptions. So what happened is it's not really crypto specific. Um, in fact, the news flow underneath the underlying news flow that we've been seeing in the crypto space has all been very positive. It's been further adoption by corporates, et cetera. Um, so it's actually been quite a positive underpin um, what we're seeing in the VC space, what we're mm -hmm. seeing in new terms of new funds coming. But crypto got hit just as hard. And I think it goes to the fact that A, it's, it's liquid. Um, B, it doesn't take a lot to move the market. So I, I still have the feeling that there's market manipulation. And I know this is a roundabout way of answering the question, but the reality is I don't think there's many, there's not an agreed standard as to what are the factors driving crypto. There's no, it's not like, you know, in the equity space, you talk about, you know, earnings, market growth, you know, thematics like, you know, the emerging market trends, et cetera, or, 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 or sector rotation. You don't really have that in the crypto space. There's a lot of factors people look at, like your total value locks and so on. But what's really driving it? I think we've been kind of at the forefront of this process over the past couple of months, trying to develop this quant model that we're building, which is yeah. attempting to tease out which factors are most correlated and which factors are driving the pricing. And is it, is it something that you, know, you, you can put your finger on exactly? Like if, I, if I've got superior um, analysis skills, let's say, and I've only looked at, to go back to the example of Coca-Cola, food and beverage companies. And I've spent the last 20 years analyzing food and beverage companies for, let's say, Credit Suisse or Merrill Lynch or Goldman's. So I really know the space well. I know everything needs to know about, you know, beverage companies. And I can predict the earnings of Coca-Cola relatively with confidence. I get it within like, you know, I'm the top yeah. rated analyst. All that's necessary then is to figure out you know, what is the risk premium people are willing to pay? In terms of uncertainty, it's higher. In terms of market growth, then it's much lower. People switch to, to growth stocks. In the crypto space, it's like, well, yes, let's say Ethereum is going to create profit of close to $10 billion this year. That's great. And that's really massive. It's 500% growth in their, in their profitability over the past, in quarter on quarter anyway, over the past year. That's as much as the likes of, 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 of McDonald's and, uh, and Walmart. So, if, if that's the kind of profit, what sort of earnings should we apply to that? In this case, I think it's like 28 times, but it's not a really a valid metric because the potential for Coca-Cola to grow their earnings or McDonald's to grow their earnings at 500% in the next year is zero. Um, but the potential for Ethereum to keep growing its earnings by that and growing its, its user base is, is very much there with the network effect. So that's why I find it hard to talk about which factors are driving it because it's definitely been driven by, I think, a lot of sentiment. I think it's, it's mm -hmm. macro and it's like, you know, people in this space to date, what we've seen over the past two and a half, three years is it's been very welcome. We've seen a big entrance into the market of investors rather than traders and speculators. So you're actually getting very high, highly pedigreed investors that take a longer term view that understand you know, the transition in technology and that are starting to back. And that's why we know this because you're seeing, you saw massive growth in the VC space. VC yeah. money is sticky money. It's not, it's not money you put into something expecting to get a return in six months. It's five to seven year cycle. So you really need to have confidence 
and back the space as an investor. You're not a trader or a speculator. You're not hedging your bets. You're really investing for the longer term. And we saw $30 billion worth of VC investment, which is more than the previous 10 years, I think, combined last year. And this year, we're expecting closer to $50 billion, I would say. And, that, and that's driving the underlying pricing, I believe. I think that's a big, big you know, shift is the sentiment, the adoption, and also the recognition that crypto is here. It's a major asset class. It's no longer a fringe asset class. It's, a, it's, it's taken its place as a major asset class. And yeah. that answer so, the so, Yeah. Yeah. So, so you know, what, one follow-up on that, right? When we use the word term crypto, crypto is, is, a, is a fairly catch-all term. Uh, yeah. It has Bitcoin. It has stable coins. It has... NFTs that has it has all kinds of asset classes grouped into one, and that's why I think we in Portal again we uh, we, we attempt to sort of classify this exactly what you mentioned. Coke represents food and beverage. You have UPS that represents transportation. Any fluctuation in let's say gas prices or petroleum has a direct impact on some of these industries, which are reliant upon uh, you know petroleum for their operations. Similarly, I think in many cases, we've tried to sort of correlate the various classification. And I think recently CoinDesk came up with digital asset classification systems, uh, similar to what Bloomberg's and, you know, have done early days for, you know, for, uh, for uh, the normal equity asset classes. I just want to get your perspective as the crypto industry matures and as crypto industry aims to sort of classify and make sense of the different types of crypto assets. Uh, do you do you see this normalizing over time? Only because I think the rate at which the crypto industry and the tokens, which sort of represents the uh, the uh, the asset classes, are growing, it's much more it's faster, ex- exponentially mm. greater than the traditional equity space. Uh, just want to get your perspective: Will that affect correlation? Because early on you mentioned that volatility and correlation are two sides of a coin. Just want to understand: Are you are you are you looking at a correlation? within crypto, whether it's intra-crypto, or you're trying to look into correlation from the traditional space and saying, how does global macro impact, let's say, the, the crypto valuation? So I think a large part of the volatility is because this is still very much uh, an inefficient and illiquid market, because as much as the fund managers are regulated and the funds are regulated, the exchanges and, and, and many of the tokens are obviously unregulated as of yet. So the big institutional money is precluded from entering the space, pensions, provident funds. They can go through the funds, but they haven't really found the liquidity they're looking for. So as more participants enter a space, obviously then there'll be more liquidity that will lead to better price discovery and people will start agreeing on sort of various metrics um, Although we tend to see a bubble first, you know, there's, there's a, too much money chasing, you know, too few opportunities. I think in terms of the underlying crypto itself, in terms of correlations, I think there's, there's been some interesting studies done most recently. And there was an article out on, on Masari, which we'll, we'll talk about in our next newsletter, where, um, you know, the correlation between Bitcoin and Ethereum to both growth and value stocks is, first of all, on a, on a long enough timeline, it's very much lower than most people expect. It fluctuates from, you know, and this is, this is how volatile crypto is. It goes from an, a correlation, an R of minus 60% to positive 90% over a, over a five-year cycle. So it's like, it really, and, and when you look at how correlated they are, you know, it, at this point, for whatever reason, like I don't actually understand the underlying drivers of it just yet. Um, I have an idea, but I'm not convinced that my hypothesis is right. If you go back over the past five years, 
Uh, Bitcoin's averaged around 35% correlation to call it the Russell 2000 index. The Russell 2000 index is a proxy for, for small cap stocks. So it's mm -hmm. growth stocks. Um, and most of those stocks, funny enough, are actually negative in growth in terms of earnings. They're actually still in that growth phase that they're tech companies that are burning cash while they're growing. We, we tend to see that correlation go deeply negative when, the, when there's a bull market in equities. Then that tends to outperform crypto to an extent but then it goes very positive when there's a risk of market and i still believe that's partly because of partly because of the liquidity but partly because you know it's it's crypto is illiquid yeah. so it, it moves quicker but when you look at bitcoin i think bitcoin seems to be behaving more like um you know call it the s p 500 or nasdaq which are more like value stocks they're bigger mm -hmm. um you know they're, they're deeper value stocks i think bitcoin's been seen more as a store of value and a way to transact and it's a way to transport capital. Whereas, you know, you get the feeling Ethereum, Ethereum's definitely trading more like a growth stock. It's trading more like a growth because it's a platform that people are building on. And as more and more people come to this platform, the network effect takes place. So I think there's definitely a split. Um, I can see that Ethereum is, is, is correlating more closely to sort of cash flow generating stocks as the, you know, as the protocol cash flow continues to increase and it's attracting more users. And you're going to see that flow through to some of the other, you know, some of the other exchanges, um, even the likes of Luna, Cardano, etc. I think that's important for what we're trying to do in terms of the portfolio we're building. We don't have the ability to diversify into, let's say, high yield bonds or different types of currencies or any of those things. We are focused on crypto. So we're, what we're trying to do within our fund is, number one, look for the cryptos or the, the digital assets that are going to outperform the majority of the market. That's a big, you know, that's 60 to 70% of our portfolio. And there's a, we're only going to pick the best 20 ideas. And then number two, we want to look at out of those ideas that we have, which ones are the mostly correlated? Because there's no point in having all your, you know, all your assets at 80 or 90% correlation. You want some, some assets that are not correlated with others, like in times of distress, which tokens outperform in times of bull market, which tokens outperform. I think that's kind of the thinking with how we're going to apply correlations to the space. When you see periods of extreme negative correlation in the crypto space, it's generally related to, um, I would say, rising yield environments or threats, you know, in terms of, excuse me, regulatory issues. That seems to be the two big things that drive crypto to an extent. And I'm not sure why it's doing it to crypto because inflation is going up interest rates are going up. There's no cost of carry. Like if you hold gold, there's a cost of carry. There's a cost of storage. That's right. And there's yeah. Inflation, interest rates go up. Why, you know, why, is it a, why is it a proxy? And that, that's kind of something I've been trying to get my head around, trying to figure out the correlation between these things. It's just animal spirits though. So on the subject of animal spirits, gold. <laughs> and so there's a correlation or, or a constant discussion about correlation and non-correlation between uh, between gold, which is you know, often referred to over the years when it was in power as this beautiful thing, and when it's not, it's a pet rock. Um, and some of the younger generation are calling it boomer rocks. There's a whole lot of cultural aspects of where gold is heading. But one thing is, in the last few years, it's just been between 1700 US dollars and 1900 US dollars. It hasn't been doing anything that exciting at all, while Bitcoin's been booming ahead. We, and then all of a sudden, it correlates for a week or two or three. Hmm. Is, is that just coincidence? Um, are, we seeing, are we seeing negative correlation to gold, positive correlation to gold, or really Bitcoin and gold are irrelevant? They're just two different items. 
so I think you've got to separate the short term, the, the knee jerk reaction from the longer term. In the short term, fear dominates. So the geopolitical situation, let's say what's happening in the, in the Ukraine at the moment. That's like, if you're sitting in the Ukraine or in Russia for bad, you know, what are your options in terms of, of stabilizing your, 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 your assets? You don't want to be investing in, in local stocks, local bonds, local cash. So you want to look for assets that are priced in dollars, and that's gold. Or you can look at crypto, um, which, is, which is global um, and has its own, you know, its own underlying. I mean, Bitcoin is Bitcoin. It's not, it, it's not pegged, so to speak. So I think that's kind of part of the driver initially is it's fear, uh, you know, a store of value. Because the first thing you want to do is preserve your wealth. In times of, of, of crisis, it's more about survival rather than prosperity. You're not thinking in the long term, gold's going to outperform mm. and that's why I'm holding gold. And you're just thinking, okay, I've got a million dollars sitting in, in, in Russian equities or a million dollars sitting in Ukrainian, you know, high yield or whatever cash. I need to get into something that can preserve that, that's transportable and that'll be priced in dollars. So that's what I think the short term effect is. And I think it's, it's useful as a hedge. And I, I still believe that, you know, most assets, depending on what kind of investor you are, all assets have a place in a portfolio. Um, some people have, you know, lower risk tolerance and they prefer yield and, and, and real estate. Other people have higher risk tolerance, prefer tech and, and crypto and so on. Um, I think in the longer term, though, the biggest driver of asset pricing is always going to be interest rates because that's discounting. That's how you discount cash flows. That money is a commodity like anything else. It's like oil or it's like, it's like corn. It's like any other commodity. The, the supply of money is determined by monetary policy, but also the demand for money is determined by interest rates. So if interest rates are very high, the demand gets choked off. If interest rates are low, there's excess liquidity, people can borrow and reinvest at high yields, higher than their cost of capital. So I think what's more useful to look at, and, and I've been doing this exercise, and it's, it's based on that Masari article I spoke to you about earlier, is during periods of interest rate cuts, what happens to the likes of, of equities and bonds and crypto and gold. So during, let's say, when there were falling yields between the end of 2013 and the beginning of 2015. So we had a couple of, 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 um, of crises, but we had falling yields, you know, the rates were coming down. You know, the markets didn't perform spectacularly well. They were up, you know, 14, 15%. Crypto, to be honest with you, during that same period was, was negative. It was down like 50%. But I think that was crypto specific because you had this, you know, it, it was still unknown at that time. If we go to a more recent time, let's say between the middle of 2019 and the end of 2021, in those sort of 18 months, so 19 to 2021, yes, that's almost two and a half years, sorry. You know, the markets had excess liquidity because you had a lot of interest rate yeah. cuts and it was further fueled by the, the COVID pandemic. So the markets itself, the S&P was up 50, the NASDAQ was almost doubled, um, but gold was only up 24%. Bitcoin was up 500%. Ethereum was up close to 2,000%. Now, that's also, I believe, because of the rates of adoption. So it wasn't just driven by, right. um, you know, when we go to interest rate hikes, that's where I'm, I'm more concerned because that's where we are in the cycle at the moment. So I say, well, you know, what happens in periods of, of, of rising yields? Um, the last time we had rising yields in the not too distant past, but in the past was from the middle of, of 2016 until the end of 2018. You saw, you saw rates and in, in interest rate hikes and yields pushing up. And, you know, the markets performed okay over that three-year period, two-and-a-half-year period. The markets were up, you know, 35 to 
Um, the Nasdaq did really well. That was driven by tech more than anything. You know, the FANG stocks pushed that up. But gold was down 12%. So over that entire period, you paid to hold gold. And I don't think there were many periods where you, and obviously we expected bonds to be down, which they were. Bonds were down even less, seven. But Bitcoin in that period was up 800%. Ethereum was up 1,700. More recently, which would be um, December last year to currently where we are now, there's been this expectation of rising rates over the past three months. And we can see that, you know, S&P would be slightly down. Um, the NASDAQ being tech heavy was down closer to 10. There were some uh, small, uh, small cap tech stocks that were down much more than that. Gold's only up 3%. It's not like gold is massively yep. outperformed. And bonds are down as well. But unfortunately for crypto, it's the worst performer. You know, Bitcoin in that period up until recently, yesterday I looked, was down 25%. Um, and Ethereum was down 35%. So it's kind of like hard to lump them together, Derek, to answer the question is to say, in the short term, I believe there's high correlation between gold and crypto. Over the longer term, there's zero growth in gold. All the gold that's mined is still above the earth. You can, you can smelt it, melt it, recycle it. There's no use for gold besides dentistry and jewelry. That's it. It's very hard to transport in its physical form. Um, if you do buy it in an ETF or, 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 or as part of a fund, you tend to need to store it in a vault and pay fees and so on. And, you know, at, at a certain cost, it becomes unfeasible to mine and there's not that much demand. Whereas in, the, in terms of crypto, what are the applications we haven't thought of yet? What are the things that are coming down the pipe? All that VC money we spoke about, what is, what is still being developed? What's the next thing? Um, you know, how much... How many more tokens are going to be coming out and what are going to be the next that, that's like the real unicorns the next yeah. growth mm. type tokens so i'll just pause there and, and if there's any kind of thoughts so, on so, so i think you know i have uh, I, I question that that narrative in terms of the fact that you know when we begin to compare the again the narratives around the risk-free interest versus risk you know interest-free risks which has you know come into question with the recent stimulus that's have that have been globally uh, sort of being introduced and and that has caused this sort of disbalance but if you look at last week's conversation, again, uh, introduction of stable coins and stable coins bringing that liquidity into the space, uh, excess liquidity, again, it's a new asset class, the potential of returns is much higher and so is the risk as opposed to gold, which is well understood. And again, with the stock to flow model, as you mentioned, there's enough gold out there. There's, it's well understood in terms of its, its supply side and then it's the matter of demand side. Whereas in crypto, it's still evolving, which means there's a higher run, you know, run, uh, a runway for us to make, uh, you know, make a profit out of it. So the question that I, I oftentimes ask is, what if we rely upon a system? Again, crypto is still emerging. The notion of money is being, re, you know, defined and redefined in the space. We've seen that with algorithmic stable coins. We've seen that with, again, using the truly fungible crypto assets like Bitcoin and Ether, and using them as payment instruments, using mm. them as crypto liquid assets. And if we were to hypothetically reduce the dependency of the crypto with the existing traditional finance, namely liquidity coming in from traditional finance, will that change the calculus? Will, will, will we view it differently in terms of volatility of these assets? Because suddenly now we are tying this to the valuation of Bitcoin natively and not Bitcoin to USD, for instance. I think it would. I think, I think, I think it's definitely going to be a theme that plays out over the next, you know, in the next, in the future. I mean, 
part of the response by, you know, the, the US in particular, I mean, NATO can talk about its member states, but ultimately the US stands behind NATO and ultimately the US is focused on, you know, maintaining its currency as the reserve currency of the world. That is what creates their wealth. And, and ultimately they, they have to ensure that the petrodollar and the trade weighted dollar remain in place for them to continue the benefits of exporting the inflation. I think you're 100% correct in that as time goes on, people will stop seeing crypto as something separate when it's like the internet. You spoke about this once that you explained how, you know, we used to talk about, I have an internet-based business. Like you don't talk about the internet anymore. The internet's a thin protocol. Everything's built on top of it. You don't talk about saying, I have a social media company. It's just, it just is the new way of how business is done. It'll be the same with blockchain. It's a, at some point, it's going to become the underpin to pretty much everything. People will stop talking about, you know, blockchain and people will be focused on what are the applications built on top of that. I think whenever you see, you know, assets that are very much, I believe, under-owned and are growing and having, you know, almost exponential opportunities in terms of how they can disintermediate things, at some point it's, it's going to get the kind of, um, backing if that's the right word or acceptance by the big institutions who either are going to have to adapt or or die as you saw the likes of kodak and and some of these other big companies that just you know refuse to believe like you know nokia comes to mind where they kind of think well we're entrenched and we don't need to worry about it too much just yet and so on and and, and they might have their eyes open but web 3.0 is a game changer as you know so i think it's going to create its own ecosystem and it's going to be you know we're moving towards a cashless society. I mean, here in Australia now, bank that I bank with, Westpac, has decided to remove all their ATMs. I have no idea why. <laughs> it's just taking away all their ATMs. Number one, <laughs> thousands of ATMs. So you're sitting there going, well, how do I get cash? And that's where we're moving towards. It just becomes, they talk about it being too expensive to maintain. But I believe that as we move towards the society where central bank digital currencies are reality, where crypto starts underpinning pretty much or blockchain starts underpinning all the sort of business protocols from supply chains to payment processes to you name it, real estate transactions, whether it's art in the, in the form of NFTs, music, it's just going to become ingrained. And once that happens, we're no longer going to be talking about, do you hold crypto? Do you pay in crypto? It'll just become another way of doing things. Like I can come pay you in gold. I can pay you in cash and use my credit card. I can borrow money or I can just pay in what crypto I have. It'll just become the next level of evolution. That's that's my feeling. And I also think people are underestimating how fast it'll happen, particularly in the world that is in currently in, in chaos. I mean, we were just hoping that, you know, when I saw a joke or meme at the beginning of the year saying, you know, never before have expectations been so low for a new year as they were at the end of last year. It was just like, if an asteroid doesn't hit Earth, we're all good, right? That's <laughs> kind of where we're at at the moment. <laughs> so, so this... This kind of constant growth, which we're obviously um, all believers in, because this is a space we're immersed in and we love. And we're seeing, as you're saying, we're seeing blockchain ultimately become ubiquitous. It's, it's like the statement of saying, I can't wait to go home and watch some multimedia. We don't say that any longer. We're immersed in it. It's all around us. It's just part of what we do. We're doing it right now. And so, so this, this constant maturing of this space it means ultimately, do you think it's going to correlate with traditional finance? Do you think because it's becoming large, institutional investors will continue to build into it? It's capitalization. Kathy Woods was saying her view is that over the next decade, it'll go to 
45 to $50 billion of capitalization is currently sitting about 1.7, something like that. This larger this space gets, do you think that means the more correlated it will get to equities or, or will equities start becoming more correlated to blockchain <laughs> technologies? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm actually very contrarian in that view. I believe that this is the, the new and the old is going to be valued at what it should be valued at, which is X growth. So in other words, there's certain businesses that are very commoditized. And, and obviously there's things like mining. It's, mining is a commodity. Whether you get iron ore from Brazil or South Africa or Australia, it's iron ore, right? Mm. Construction companies take massive risk with very small margins. And yet in times of boom, they'll trade at crazy multiples, like 20, 24 P's. Uh, businesses that pull rock out the ground and crush rock aggregate and then go on to create bitumen and tar. Like these are businesses that are exploded. The world is, the technology, all technology is doing is lowering their cost curve. So the technology is flattening their cost curve. I think that's going to decouple. In other words, I believe that, that equities are X growth because, well, the earnings visibility is just not there anymore. You know, there's in terms of banking, there's and technology has changed this in terms of smartphones, internet connectivity. There's still a lot of people that are unbanked, yes, and there's still a lot of growth into emerging markets. And and you know, we used to have this Maltusian view of the world that everything was going to be we we're going to run out of food. I remember when I was at school, they told us by the year 2000 <laughs> there's going to be riots. And what happened was the opposite. Everyone got very much richer in emerging markets. There's, there's still that the Gini coefficient between rich and poor, which is a very complex problem to try and solve, and it needs to be solved. It's very important. But in terms of what we're trying to understand as an asset class, where do we invest our money? Where do we put our bets? Where it's going to generate the highest risk-adjusted return. It's always risk-adjusted, not just the highest return. Because you know you can take your, you know, take your money to the horse track and you can get a very high return if you pick a three-legged donkey that are 100 to 1 odds that wins. But we're not looking to do that. We're looking to figure out prudently how to manage money, take risk, and generate superior returns, which is inflation-beating returns or market-related returns for lower, much lower risk. So I think... The more people that enter, they're going to be less liquidity flowing into equities, less liquidity flowing into gold, less liquidity looking for yields in a very much um, an environment where cash flows are, are under stress. And there's going to be more liquidity looking in terms of how do pension funds cover their pensions? You've got to remember they have obligations. Insurance companies, the biggest problem in insurance companies is a big backlash. There's a war going on at the moment. A real fight is starting between insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies. Um, because the pharmaceutical companies have limited liability and the insurance companies don't. They still have to pay out life insurance and disability and all these things. How do they create, how do they match their assets and liabilities? You're not going to do it in low growth stocks. You're not going to do it in, in yields that are like 1%. You're not going to do it in gold. So you've got to look for, you know, the next area of growth. And the one thing we need to be aware of and be very much watching is when prices go exponential, that's the sign of a bubble. And bubbles can go on for a long time. We saw it with you know, commodities, oil, sort with real estate in the States, asset-backed securities. You've got to watch it and say, well, when is the bubble? And, and you want to be, participate to an extent, but you also don't want to be, you know, if you're going to panic, panic first. You don't want to be the last, the last person leaving the party, so to speak. So I believe that the correlations will break down. I believe that the markets are actually going to do that. Like if I just put on a trade, long, short trade as a fund manager, I would say short banks, short consumer stocks, short real estate investment groups, definitely short mining. And I would say, you know, long DeFi, long smart contracts. I wouldn't say long NFTs because I don't see the real economic underpinning just yet. But I would yep. say long, 
long the trends we're seeing like working from home the likes of of living mobile working so to speak i can't remember the exact term for it yes. i said along Di- those sort of things digital natives digital digital yeah <laughs> along that. like you nitin <laughs> yeah spoke spoke so, like a true crypto investor uh uh mark that's true as being long on crypto i think has you know certainly has uh its advantages and it's it's you know your thinking is absolutely right i think the world is shifting the value systems are shifting we need to understand that shift uh as you describe it hmm. another thing well, is i think I mean, that brings us to to the end there because we're we're we've gone um, our normal 30, 35 minutes here. And, and it's so frustrating because it's always something you can settle in and have a conversation for the next hour and a half on. Right. Um, because this particular topic, which is the topic on volatility, the topic on correlation, the topic on equity exchanges versus the world, the dynamic world of crypto assets, um, is just so extraordinarily deep. I, I listened to Roll Powell talk uh, probably six or eight months ago. And he said, look, he said, I spend my entire life interviewing some of the top people in this space. I research it. I invest in it. I read about it. My entire life is dedicated to looking at this. And he said, I think I know about 30% of what's going on. Mm. And I think we, that's what's happening in a young, rapidly growing space, which is this space. There are so many doors to enter it by. And I think for those that are getting sometimes a little overwhelmed by it, when you hear Roll Powell's comment, you can also turn around and go, oh, that's okay. I don't have to know everything about it. I'll just learn what I can and progressively understand it. And often these macro trends are a really good way to progressively understand that. And so, Mike, thank you very much for coming on. Um, yeah. We greatly appreciate it. Yeah, this was terrific. And Mark, we could speak for hours, as, as Derek mentioned. There's so much to unpack, uncover, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, Derek, we should probably make this a regular thing with Mark to, to explain things that are complicated. So, Mark, thanks for your time here. No, my pleasure. I appreciate it. I think it's, it's important because, you know, the reality is when we look back in, you know, 10 years, uh, you know, God willing, we will realize that we've been part of the, um, almost the pioneers in, in terms of figuring out how to value the space how to apply process. I think that's, that's what's most important in times of, you know, when, when, you, when you're seeing macro breakdown and you're seeing lots of pessimism or you're seeing the world change and lots of volatility, the only way to really make sense of the world is to, you know, have a process that measures and manages these things and says, well, let's look at the past and let's look to the future. And we're designing that. I think what's really interesting, along with a lot of the other funds that are out there, but we're in the process of designing that. And what we're doing today will eventually become adopted by some of the big institutions and will eventually become the kind of, you know, it'll be taken for granted, just like we take GARP accounting and earnings per share for granted today. They weren't always the standard of how you measured equities. Yes. Yes, very much so. Well, Mark, let's get you on again in a few months' time, get an update on how we're going in volatility and correlation, and hopefully on the other side of this uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine and see what happens with the global economies and how both our world of crypto and the world of uh, equities uh, are coping and, for that matter, correlating. So thanks very much indeed, Mark. Great to have you along. Good to see you again, Nitin, of course. We'll see you next week. Likewise, Derek, Mark. See you next week. Bye, guys. You soon. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please feel free to connect with either Nitin or myself on nitin at portal.am or 
Derek at Portland.am. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week. Bye for now.